Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 46. And we'll be covering verses 8 to 27, though I'm just going to read the beginning bit and the end bit of that portion. Hear then God's holy and inspired word. Verses 6 to 8 and then 26 to 27. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. And verse 26, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and for your spirit, by which we may have our minds enlightened in the knowledge of Christ. I pray that you would be with us here as we look into this passage, that we would indeed behold wonderful things in your law that we would have our eyes more and more fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I trust that in these past few days, you have prepared the hearts of these people to be fertile soil in which your word may be graciously planted and it would grow with strong roots and bear much fruit to your glory. And please keep me from error that I would not lead even the littlest one astray. As I pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen. Well, I have to admit that texts like today's are difficult in one very human way. There is no stirring story to revel in with you, no pointed lessons specifically laid out in the course of these verses, no obvious mention of Christ by way of shadows or later prophetic fulfillment. Those are often very easy ways to get engaged with the text and find meaning to communicate. And really, if it wasn't for the inescapable fact that verses 8 to 27 follow close on the heels of verses 1 through 6 that I covered last time, it would be very easy to skip over this and move on to something that is more engaging to, at least for me, my lazy mind. But as I reflected on these words and uh, really pleaded with the Holy Spirit to give me something to say to you. Uh, It was impressed upon me the words of the Lord that he expressed to Isaiah the prophet. In chapter 58 or 55, God said to him, God's ways are not your ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Which, of course, is not a good thing. That's not a compliment to man. I believe that as we mature in Christ, our ways and our thoughts do become more and more like His. There is a progress there. Uh, The gulf between us, though, will never completely be closed, since by our very nature we are creatures and He is not a man. Yet over time, by grace, exercising our faith, this process of sanctification works its way, and the disparity between us, the disparity between those thoughts, the disparity between those ways gets narrower. It diminishes, Lord willing. So as we ponder this passage, I ask God, and I pray for you to ask on my behalf, and really for your own behalf, as you're taking this in and pondering its significance for your lives, Lord, sanctify me today, right now. What is your purpose in recording these verses in Holy Scripture? 
I think the overall significance, and as you can see in those brief outlines I prepared for you, uh, comes to us in two parts. First, that God surely fulfills his promise to multiply Abraham's offspring, and the numbers tallied here are a stepping stone marking that progress, a testament to God's faithfulness. But second, there is the rebuke spoken by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, that outward growth can lead to idolatry and unbelief. So say it again, different words, make sure we get it. Moses here in Genesis gives this accounting of Jacob's family at the time of their trip down to Egypt to testify to the faithfulness of God in bringing about the promise he made to Father Abraham. And Luke and Acts record Stephen's speech before the council, which makes mention of this tallying of Jacob's family at the time they went into Egypt. There that is done to rebuke his listeners who had made an idol of the results of God keeping those very same promises. And to distill it down even further, also written on your note sheet there, God fulfills his promises, yet sinful men are prone to making idols, even of the good things given to them by the Lord our God. So let's jump into these two points, dig into it just a little bit further. This is not going to be an hour-long sermon, just to let you know. So first, let's look at the growth of Abraham's descendants. Uh, This was promised to Abraham in Genesis 22, 17, a verse I've quoted for you previously in the few sermons I've had opportunity to share with you from Genesis. It's in Genesis 22, 17 that God said to Abraham, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Our response should be, wow, that is a lot of multiplying. That is a huge multiplication. Made all the more astounding because at the time that was spoken to him, Abraham had one son. It's not like he had a whole bunch of family that in humanly speaking could theoretically make this happen. No, he had one son, but of course that's progress from none. And even at the time of Abraham's death, when he was 130 years old, his family had only expanded to include two grandsons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was only 15 years old when his grandfather Abraham died. So Abraham did not live to see any of Jacob's sons, the great-grandsons of Abraham. So the fact is, this promise still seemed impossible, humanly speaking. And this is why later authors, speaking especially of the author of Hebrews, emphasize Abraham's faith in trusting the Lord for what was as yet unseen. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham left his homeland, not knowing where he was going. God said, go. He said, okay, I'll go. Don't know where we're going, but I will go. By faith Abraham dwelt as a stranger in Canaan. So he even got to the place, oh, okay, this is where we're supposed to be. It's his. He's given a right to it, but he dwelt in tents, wandering around, not taking tangible possession of it. And thirdly, by faith, Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac, not holding too close to himself the present life of his son. So in those three things, he was promised, and he could see it by faith, but he could not see it and grab it tangibly. Or in the third case, was willing to let it go, knowing that there was a future hope, potential resurrection of Isaac. So certainly, it took genuine faith to believe that Abraham's offspring would be as the text says, as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. It was something to be believed to be true, even though he could not see it. And as we're instructed there in Hebrews, that is the essence of faith, to believe what we can't see, because God has says it is true. 
So here in Genesis 46, we come to, historically speaking, the halfway point of the 430-year-long sojourn spoken of in Exodus 12, same counting given in Galatians 3. 215 years had passed since Abraham began this journey, entering Canaan, pitching his tent here and there, wandering by faith. And another 215 years lie ahead for his descendants to serve in Egypt and then come out to possess the promised land. At this midway point, I believe, the divine author checks in with us, as it were, gives us a progress report. So how's it going with this great multiplication that I, the Lord God, had promised? Well, we're up to 70. That's a great increase from one. It's a great increase from two or three or four. It's a lot of growth, but progress yet to be made. It is indeed a stepping stone along the way to the census taken in Numbers chapter 26. There, the head count, the census of God's people, totals over 600,000, and that is only the men ready to go to war. doesn't include their families or others who don't go into battle. So to say it again, because it's important enough to warrant, in my Bible, at least seven column inches of text, Moses' point here is that God is faithful to fulfill his promises made to Abraham. Without a doubt, he is faithful. Moses, in recording this, wants us to see the progress. That progress points forward to later tallies and indeed to the fulfillment of those promises, even in the New Testament. Now, though, let's turn to a much later biblical perspective on this tally of Jacob's family who made the descent into Egypt. Uh, Seventy people, as it's worded there in verse 27 of chapter 46. And it is that number that is the tie-in, though I don't want you to be thrown off by the uh, wording or the, uh, the, the number there in Acts chapter 7. Let me turn to it now. And turn with me if you like. We'll be spending a bit of time here. Acts chapter 7, verse 14. Remember, this is uh, Stephen's uh, defense of himself and of the Christian faith before the council. Ends with his stoning. He's giving this uh, very dramatic and emphatic history lesson to the council. He says in verse 14, Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him. Seventy-five people. So don't be thrown off by 75 people versus in Genesis 46. It's 70 people. That number is the tie-in that I'm trying to bridge here between uh, Moses and Stephen. Don't be thrown off by that difference. Uh, I believe there is no conflict. There are multiple reasonable explanations for this different accounting, and we could discuss those later. There is no uh, contradiction, no error in the text. So Moses attests to the growth from 1 to 70-something, on the way to 600,000 plus, while Stephen attests to that same 70-something people entering Egypt. On the way to what? What is Stephen looking forward to in the progress of his story here, his defense against the accusations recorded in Acts chapter 7? Is he pointing to the, the overwhelming explosion of the population and all the great things that God's people did thereafter? No. If we follow some highlights and look with me at these pages, Steve, the point of Stephen's lecture is to show that God was faithful, the same exact point that Moses makes, but on the whole, the Israelites were faithless, very convicting as he goes through these details. By way of detail, he shows that shortly after the Exodus, there was a great rebellion among the Israelites where they rejected Moses himself. That's verse 39. 
that they preferred the slavery of Egypt to the difficulties of following God in the desert. Also verse 39. Uh, In verse 40, they pleaded with Aaron to make idols for them. In verse 41, they sacrificed to the golden calf. In verse 42, they worshiped the host of heaven. Uh, Later, God continued to take care of them. In verse 44, they had the tabernacle. They even even carried it with them in the days of Joshua when they went into the promised land and God graciously drove out their enemies. That's verse 45. Later still, God built a house for them where he was to dwell in the time of Solomon. That's verse 47. That all sounds a mixture of bad and good. God is continuing to pour out these blessings. He's doing more and more good for them yet their responses are faithless. So the key point, God was blessing them. Their numbers increased, and they had an amazing temple in which God was to dwell, yet tragically, at the same time as there was this outward growth, this outward uh, multiplication of God's blessing upon them, their faithlessness multiplied. And he says this stern rebuke in verse 51 to 53, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And, which, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Very next verse. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Did they repent? Break down in tears? No. They were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth, being full of the, but he being full of the Holy Spirit had peace. They, being full of hate, stoned him. Always fascinating to me that other times people are chastened by harsh words in, in Acts 2. They, they cry out in repentance. What shall we do here? The exact opposite. That anger stirs up even more vehemently. So they had a populous nation. That promise of numerical growth was fulfilled. They lived in the promised land. That promise of taking possession of the territory happened. They had a temple where God himself visited them. They had prophets that provided direct communication from God. And they fought against God time and time again. They lived, as we do, as we'll get to in a second here, They lived in the midst of God's outward blessing, yet they lacked faith and missed the substance of those blessings. They mistook the things that were created, all the children that came from them, the buildings that were built, the enemies that fled. They mistook those things created for the Creator, the essence of idolatry. So the tie-in with Moses and with Stephen here is the 70-some people. Moses wants you to know that the kingdom of God grew in the time of the patriarchs, that God surely is faithful. And Stephen wants you to know that despite tremendous outward blessing, in spite of God's sure faithfulness attested to by Moses, Israel largely was faithless. The council leaders that Stephen spoke to there were the enemies of God at the very time they were sitting as his judges. May that not be true of us or anybody who calls on the name of Jesus. And I ask us all to consider Stephen's rebuke that I read a moment ago from verses 51 to 53. Ponder ways in which we have been stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart 
or ears, ways that you, let's make it the personal pronoun, or second person, resisted the Holy Spirit? Have you violated the angelically conveyed law of God and failed to see Jesus, to, sorry, flee to Jesus in repentance, thereby murdering him? That might uh, seem like a severe list of charges. Certainly, the people here in Stephen's time were highly, highly offended by it. Uh, we can easily think, oh, that's suited for those people back there. I mean, they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, plainly, they're guilty of this. Uh, the Hitler types, right? The really, really bad people, they do these things. I don't. But, and it was referred to earlier, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount makes it much more convicting. <laughs> the same commandments broken by us in different ways. Certainly, as the Westminster Standards explain for us, there is different degrees of heinousness. Not all sins are alike unto themselves. Murdering Jesus is a higher thing than being angry with your little brother. There's a lot in between there, but they're both murder. They're both killing. It is much more humbling to look at ourselves, uh, to look at our own face in the mirror, and to hear Nathan's rebuke of David. Remember that from 2 Samuel 12? You are the man. Those are powerful words. It's a supreme act of grace for our response to be David's response. He says, following verse, or five verses later, I have sinned against the Lord. That's grace. That's mercy at work there to stir up his humility to say that. And it is sweet words of mercy to hear Nathan's assurance in reply to him, the Lord has put away your sin. So friends, we are tremendously blessed. But we run the risk of having these benefits be short-term, and we run the risk of having these benefits be idols, things that we put in the place of God. And I think the recent events, while totally unforeseen a year ago, have really challenged a lot of people. You know, the job market's been messed up. Oh, wait a second. I guess I took for granted that cushy salary I had. The stores are closed. This is inconvenient. I can't just go get whatever I want for dinner. We all have been relying on things to varying degrees. I don't point the finger at anybody in here. Pointing at me, because it was inconvenient. Six weeks ago, <laughs> I didn't have that stash of food that I sometimes have, and God challenged me. So, we are tremendously blessed. We run the risk of uh, acting in idolatry, uh, trusting in these benefits instead of the Lord that brings them about for us, and missing the giver as we enjoy the good gifts given. So, this title though not hermeneutically appropriate. It was written at the very end, actually. I came up with the title this morning. It's nice to not have to print the outlines on Friday. It gives you time to wait to the last minute. And I really want to emphasize that we can focus on the gifts rather than the giver. There was a book written by John Piper. I have to confess I've never read it. I've always been intrigued by the title. I think it's John Piper. It's titled, God is the Gospel. Can anybody raise their hand to affirm that I got the right author, right book? Maybe no, none of you have read it either. I'm not the only one. So God is the gospel. The gospel is not something we put in our pocket, right, and take with us and uh, feel uh, at peace uh, through the rocky parts of life. God is the gospel. He's given himself 
The point of the gospel is to have fellowship with him, as was emphasized in our communion meditation from the high priestly prayer. God is the gospel. Fellowship, relationship with him is the hope that we have. Let us not mistake the things created for him who created them. May we be people who hear God's commendation rather than rebuke, precisely because we humbly repent of our sins and seek mercy in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the good gifts you give. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May we in all times, in all places, and in all ways give thanks to you. And thanking especially not just for the things, though they are good, and evidence of your kindness and your wisdom and your generosity and your sovereignty and all of the great attributes that you declare about yourself in Scripture. But they are further evidence of who you are as our Savior, as our Lord, as the captain of our faith, as our maker, our creator, our redeemer, the one we have been called to love and to serve and to proclaim. May our eyes be upon you and at the same time give us grace to enjoy the things that manifest your goodness to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.